reading comes from Psalm 116. It can be found on page 491 on the, on the Pew Bibles. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, save my life. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord protects the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my, ears from, uh, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I walked before the Lord in the land of the living. I kept my faith even when I said, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my consternation, everyone is a liar. What shall I return to the Lord for all his bounty to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious is the sight of the Lord, is the death of the... Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful ones. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the child of your serving girl. You have loosened my bonds. I will offer to you a thanksgiving sacrifice and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Um, the second reading comes from Acts chapter 4, um, verse 13 to 37, and it can be found on page 887 of the Pew Bibles. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were amazed and recognized them as companions of Jesus. When they saw the man who had been cured standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. They offered them to leave the council while they would discuss the matter with one another. They said, what will we do with them? For it is obvious to all who live in Jerusalem that a notable sign has been done through them. We cannot deny it. But to keep it from spreading further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in, his name, in this name. So they called them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the God's sight to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them again, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all of them praised God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing had been performed was more than 40 years old. After they were released, they went to their friends and reported sorry, yeah, sorry. After they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they raised their voices together to God and said, "Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them, it is you who said by the Holy Spirit through your ancestor David to your servant, "Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples imagine vain things?" 
The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers have gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in this city, in fact, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of, people of Israel, gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servant to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and the signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possession, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and the great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. There was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barabbas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that, was, that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Um, the next reading comes from Mark chapter 10, verse 32 to 45. Uh, sorry, it can be found on page 823 of the Pew Bibles. Uh, Mark 10, 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. They took the twelve aside again and began to tell them what had happened to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise again. James and John, the son of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it that you want to do for me? Do, want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be the first among you must be the slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Two weeks ago, we began our integrated series for the year, which we've titled Church by Grace, the Beating Heart of CCRW. 
And so over the next few weeks, as we've done uh, the last couple in our services here, in our fellowship groups, uh, in the devotional material that's been supplied, we explore our values as a church, those convictions that guide and guard our life and mission, the often uh, unspoken but nonetheless deep commitments that shape the way we do things around here. They're our way of trying to capture what it means to be thoroughly, utterly gospel-saturated, gospel-centred, for the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ to seep into every corner and crevice of our life as a church. That's why we began with what the gospel is a couple of weeks ago. And last week saw how it calls and empowers us to live in full devotion to Jesus because he is fully devoted to us. Today we move into the second value, which concerns being servants. If you have the booklets with you or you read them during the week, you'll see how we put it. We each use all we have to serve Jesus Christ, his church and his world because he gave his all to serve each one of us. Our focus, as I mentioned before, is one of the most counterintuitive, upside down, easy to talk about, but really hard to do things in the Christian life, being a servant. And it's an issue that lies at the intersection of three crucial concerns. You see, there's nothing as excellent in life as knowing that you are an agent of the blessing of God to other people. Uh, most of the time, we just we, we get up, we go through our day, we do our thing, we eat, we you know, work, we go out, we come home. But, but if, if woven in and through all of that, all the ordinary business of life, to know that you're an agent of the blessing of God, that he does stuff through you for others, that's a wonderful thing. At one point, the Apostle Paul uses a metaphor about uh, utensils in the household dedicated and useful to the owner, ready for every good work. And he's, he's speaking about the joy of being available and effective in the service of the living and true God. To, to find that you, you, your abilities, your contribution, your words and your actions and your prayers actually serve the glory of God and the building of his kingdom and the life of people. And living in that confidence, having that kind of clarity of purpose, having that level of focus, having that sense of meaning to life is a profound blessing. Service really counts. But at the same time, it's not just about us personally, although that's true. The fact is that the church is never more truly the church that when it lives out the reality that it is a body. Together. With the Lord Jesus Christ as its head and every member making a particular and valuable contribution. Uh, I've reached the age where various elements of my anatomy just don't work as well as they used to. Uh, my hamstring muscles were never especially stretchable, uh, but now they refuse to budge even one centimetre. Uh, I've become the official member for comic relief on the CCIW soccer team where my primary goal is to finish the game without having done myself an injury, which I failed yesterday and my calf is in some sort of agony. Not all the parts of my body work anymore. And I'm the poorer for it. And the church is only at its very finest when all the parts of the body are working properly. Each one of us clear and empowered and joyful in the contribution that they make. 
So it's a, this is an issue that's very intensely personal, but it, it's also one that concerns us as a church. But thirdly, there's nothing more that the world in general and in our context, the inner West in particular needs. Nothing more that the inner West needs than a Christian community that operates at its full redemptive potential. What our world needs to see and hear and be touched by is a community that is so full of grace and truth. The grace and truth of Jesus Christ that it just overflows with grace and truth to the streets and the households and the schools and the workplaces and the homeless people and the lonely people and the community groups around us. For it to actually experience a spirit of service in the name of a gracious Lord in an environment, particularly here in the inner west, which is obsessed with consumption and with utility. And our passage for today is one of the great passages of teaching by Jesus about being servants. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. And, and we learn uh, three things here. You can see them there in the outline, very simple. The problem with service, the freedom to serve, and the greatness of service. Problem, freedom, greatness. So first then, the problem of service. You see, I think that we are mostly convinced in theory that a life overflowing with service to God and others is a good, deep, real way to live. I don't think there are many people who want written on their tombstones, I lived a really inward, selfish, self-absorbed, complaining life. Okay, hands up. You know, no one wants that. That's, that's not how we actually plan to live our lives. But translating that theory into experience is very difficult. And actually, I, I think that's what we see in this passage. Mark 10 is all about people who fear missing out on something. They, they get grasping because of that, and it gets in the way of their service. So if you go back to verse 17, you see a rich man who comes to Jesus afraid that he's going to miss out on eternal life. Uh, here is a man who has everything. This is a man who seems, at least on the surface, to be both rich and good. Think about it. Normally, you're one or the other, right? But this guy's both. He's rich and good. And yet Jesus says he lacks one thing. He lacks lack. And his lack of lack is keeping him from the one thing that he really needs, which is Jesus. And so he goes away grieving because he loves his possessions more. They do something for his soul that means he will hold on to them, even if it means he will let go of Jesus. He's grasping. He can't let go. He's desperate. And it stops him serving. Uh, Jesus goes on to explain to his disciples that it's almost impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, which is crazy, of course, because the whole idea of being rich is nothing is impossible for you when you're rich. Okay? When you're really rich, the whole deal is that you can do whatever you want. But Jesus says, no, it's almost impossible for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. Peter stands up and says that he and the other disciples, uh, on the contrary, have left everything to follow Jesus. And I wonder if there's just perhaps a hint of desperation, perhaps just a hint of wondering, is it worth it? Is serving Jesus worth it when it means you give up a lot of stuff? Which leads to the third incident then, which is James and John asking Jesus to do for them whatever they want. Uh, this is a classic uh, uh, kind of power play, right? Uh, Give us whatever we want. We're not going to tell you what we want up front until we get the commitment that you'll give it to us. And, and what they want is nothing less than to sit at his right hand and left hand in glory. 
This is, this is such an appalling moment of self-absorption. Jesus has just finished saying that the time is coming when he'll be arrested and he'll be condemned and he'll be spat on and he'll be flogged and killed and then rise from the third day. And James and John are thinking about only themselves. They have Jesus who's about to do all this for them. But it's not enough for them. It's not enough for them to be servants. They want honour and glory and power. And so they're scrambling, grasping, desperate for the most prominent positions in his kingdom. Keller, uh, Tim Keller in his book, a uh, really terrific little book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, um, kind of summarises this, uh, what we're seeing here in Mark 10 and uh, talks about it in terms of the human ego. He writes uh, this, I quote, the natural condition of the human ego is overinflated, swollen, inflamed, and ready to burst. Um, it's like when you have something that really disagrees with you. I know um, uh, someone who's just, for garlic, just really, there's something in the gut and it just expands out and it's full of air and it's just bloated. And you, you ever felt like, and, and the, the thing is, it's empty. It's bloated and, and swollen, but empty. There's nothing at its centre. Keller goes on, it searches the human ego for something that will give it a sense of worth, a sense of specialness and a sense of purpose and builds itself on that. And of course, as we're often reminded, if you try to put anything in the middle of the place that was originally made for God, it's going to be too small. It's going to rattle around in there. And so the first thing about the human ego is that it's empty. And this emptiness has an effect, you see, in our lives. He, he writes, the way the normal human ego tries to fill its emptiness and deal with its discomfort is by comparing itself to other people. It is incredibly busy doing two things in particular, comparing and boasting. That's how we try and fill our lack, to compare ourselves to other people and make sure we find people who we can compare them down and us up. And that it, boasting is not what you say. That's just the product of your boasting. Boasting is putting others down and yourself up. Boasting is a thing that you do in your heart. That's why we struggle when we see others doing better than us. That's why we find it so difficult to deal with criticism of ourselves that comes our way. And Keller goes on and talks about self-esteem and identity. He writes, the problem with self-esteem, whether it's high or low, think about this, the problem with self-esteem, whether it's high or low, is that every single day we are in the courtroom. Every single day we're on trial. That's the way identity works. It's up for grabs. You've got to shore it up. And the point that he's making is just, I think, what we're seeing in Mark chapter 10. There's an emptiness in the human heart. And we see in these three uh, incidents, these conversations, that we get busy trying to fill it by proving ourselves, by comparing ourselves, by grasping for ourselves. And when you do that, you can't possibly do anything other than serve yourself. You turn inward. I'll give you one of the most straightforward ways to know 
Whether your heart is full or empty, it's whether you grumble and complain a lot. When your heart is full, you don't grumble. The natural disposition of your heart is to give thanks, no matter what your circumstances, to give thanks. When your heart is empty, even, even when under tough circumstances, when your heart's full, you, you can still give thanks. But when your heart is empty, it doesn't matter what your circumstances are. You grumble and you complain and you whinge and you whine a lot. You can't serve out of an empty heart. It just won't happen. And so how do we feel that emptiness? Point to the freedom to serve. Notice that Jesus says at the climax of the passage that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So I want to just focus in on that word ransom. Uh, when he says uh, ransom, I think that he's talking about exactly what we've seen in Mark chapter 10 earlier on. He's talking exactly about what we're actually looking at here. You see, being ransomed is being redeemed. It's being released. It's being unchained from being in bondage and in uh, chains, buying a person out of captivity. Uh, you know this from the endless variations on the ransom theme that you've seen in movies. Someone gets kidnapped, they're imprisoned, uh, the only way to get them back from their imprisonment and their, in, in, in their bondage is to free them through a terribly costly exchange. Someone hands over the ransom money and then that buys back the freedom of the person who's in captivity. Ransom is a price, it's a cost, it's an exchange that's always substitutionary. The ransom substitutes for the person and the person gets free where the ransom was. And what I want to do is just draw out the implications of that image. It's not accidental that Jesus says that he came to give his life as a ransom for many because he knows that we're enslaved. Do you see that follows? If, if that's what a ransom is about, what Jesus is saying is every one of us, apart from his, him, is enslaved, that we're in bondage. And what is it that we're fundamentally in bondage to? We're in bondage to the emptiness of our hearts. And all the miserable, self-serving behaviour that that condition drives. Whether it's self-indulgence, you, you, can, you can kind of just be acting out and lashing out and doing all sorts of crazy stuff to try and fill up the emptiness of your heart. Or you can do it in very, very upright, self-righteous ways. Whether it's self-indulgence or self-righteousness, what's the common factor there? Self. And Jesus says he's come to be the ransom. He's come to offer himself as the terribly costly exchange as he gives his life on the cross. And that changes everything, you see, when you're ransomed by Jesus. To be ransomed is an incredibly powerful reality that speaks to the depths of our souls. You see, what is it that could possibly satisfy you so sufficiently that you no longer feel the need to look after number one? What could possibly empower you not to be self-serving but to be self-sacrificial in the service of God and of others? And Jesus says that the only the ransom from sin and self that is paid for us on the cross will do that job. The cross of Christ speaks to us so definitively of our value. 
that to the living and true God, you are worth this much, the blood of his son. That you are freed from ever needing to bolster your sense of self by grasping and holding and turning inward. We've been ransomed from sin and selfishness precisely because the roots of our sin and selfishness are withered away. We just don't need it anymore in the love and grace and beauty of the ransoming cross. And that sets us on a new path. It's a path that follows the same pattern of Jesus, that walks in the footsteps of Jesus. It's the path of servanthood. Now notice the almost unbearable paradox here. Uh, this is such an, such an interesting uh, phrase. I, I've, I've been working and thinking about this hard for a, a number of weeks now, just really trying to crack this open. Jesus says he didn't come to be served, but to serve. Okay, we've focused on the second half of that, that he came to serve, and what a wonderful, glorious, costly, ransoming service it was. But, but notice the first half as well. Jesus says he didn't come to be served, actually. He's not particularly interested in being served. He doesn't need your service. He's not needy like that. He doesn't depend on your service. He's so much more interested in serving, in filling each one of us with his glorious grace, rescuing us from all the spiritual powers that hold us and enslave us. But notice, it is precisely that fact that he doesn't need to be served that changes our hearts. He doesn't come with a big wagging finger. He just comes with arms nailed open on the cross. And it's that which melts our hearts and softens us, is a pure gift to us, so that we can let go of all the neediness and entitlement and grasping that without Jesus will underlie all our behaviour and dominate every part of our soul. Do you see this sort of near paradox? The fact that he doesn't come to be served turns out to be the very thing that means we are so gloriously spiritually free that there is nothing more that we could possibly have as our joy than to serve him. Which leads to the third point, the greatness of service. You see, what Jesus teaches us here is that service is not just good, it's great. Of course, uh, Jesus is crystal clear on how absurd that sounds. Greatness amongst the pagans, as he puts it, the Gentiles, uh, back then in the first century or now in the 21st century for that matter. Uh, greatness is well understood to be a function of who gets to lord it over who and who can tyrannise who. You see little L lords all the time uh, at dinner tables, in workplaces even, and perhaps especially actually at boom gates or with lollipop people. Remember any of those lollipop people who get in your way when you're driving? and it just happens to be school time, and they love just walking right out and shoving that lollipop right up your nose. Love exercising power. Little lords with their little bit of power making other people conform to their wishes. Uh, the way the world works, right, is we know, we know this. There's a scale according to who can impose their will upon others, impose their ideas, impose their preferences and plans. And the more people you can impose your will on and the fewer people who can impose their will on you, the higher up the pecking order you are. That's how the world works. 
Uh, I've only once or twice seen a genuine bully in action. I mean, a really nasty bully. I was on a committee once with a guy who's a very large presence, a booming voice, and he had absolute certainty about the righteousness, or I think perhaps the self-righteousness of his own actions. And he just bullied his way through this committee. I've never seen anything like it. Barking instructions and demanding things to be and uh, forcing his opinions. And he got his way. He got his way almost without a whimper from anyone. No one. I wasn't up for it. But here's the thing, Jesus knows that that is the way of the world, but he says the wrong thing. What Jesus should say is, therefore, don't seek power, right? Don't be like that. Don't seek greatness. Don't aim at influence. Don't be great like that. Except that's precisely what Jesus doesn't say. He does uh, what you might call a judo move. Jesus often does judo moves, actually, where he uses the weight of the opponent for him rather than against him and Jesus endorses the ambition to be great. He says, you be awesome. You be the greatest that you can possibly be. He stokes the fires of the desire for preeminence and then switches the content. You be great and make sure you get the fact with crystal clarity that greatness is measured by one thing and one thing only. It's measured by servanthood. And the way to be the first is to be the slave of all. In other words, greatness is a function not of your capacity to impose yourself on others. Greatness is a product of your capacity to give yourself away for the sake of others. Your time and your effort, your energy, your money, your resources. Greatness is not measured by the extent to which you organise others around your agenda. It's measured by the extent to which you organise yourself around others' agendas. It consists not in imposing your will on others, but in submerging your will for others. That's greatness. The first will be last. My bullying friend, last. And the last will be first. The great one is the servant. The preeminent one is the slave of all. And this vision of greatness is held out to us as part of what strengthens us to be servants. You are never more like Jesus Christ than when you are serving. Do you see that? Really serving. Because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Now... What could possibly persuade you that this is true? I mean, I know you know that it's true. Uh, Jesus said it. Does Jesus tell the truth? Yes, therefore this is true. But I'm talking about actually believe it's true. Because nothing in the way our world runs allows this to make sense. Stand uh, on the sideline of any sporting game or in the queue at any shopping centre and what you hear is again and again and again in conversation, although it's not much really like conversation, it's more like a whinge session, of people, in effect, complaining that other people, sports coaches, house builders, teachers, are not bending with sufficient speed or determination to my will. That's how the world runs, right? No. No, it's not. It's not how Jesus' world runs. It's not how God's world runs. 
In Jesus' world, here's what it means to be the son of man, that, that great figure from the prophet Daniel in his prophecy in chapter 7, uh, to whom he's given all dominion and power, all authority in heaven and on earth. Here's what it means for him to be the son of man. It means he came to be, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many and to be raised on the third day in glorious, pure vindication. You want to know whether this is true, what Jesus says? Here's the evidence that this is how the world really works. It's on the basis of how it in fact worked for Jesus. That we can disbelieve everything that our eyes see and know with clarity and confidence that the last and the least and the slaves and the servants don't stay last. They aren't just trodden on. They don't simply get relegated to the scrap heap. They're actually the first and the greatest because that's how it is for Jesus. It's a fact. Now notice this is not talking about being weak. I don't see any weakness of character in Jesus' determination uh, to be the servant and slave of all on that cross. That's not weakness. That is a moment of supreme strength and confidence in God. It takes enormous strength to actually serve other people. It's not an act of weakness. And what Jesus is inviting us here to do is to join him in construing the world this way, to understand greatness like this, perceiving that it is encountering in others as of a higher priority than yourself, of their convenience, not yours, of their preferences, not yours, of their needs, not yours, that true power and glory are found. It's what it is to be a disciple of Jesus, to have been ransomed by him, and so to have your soul filled with him, and so to be more like him, a servant. It means you instinctively respond to the need of others or the opportunity to bless others. It means you, you enter rooms, you make decisions, you encounter people, and your posture, the stance of your heart is not, what can I get out of this moment? Will I have fun in this moment? Am I going to enjoy this moment? Will I get much out of this? That's, that's not the posture of a servant. That's, that's to be served, you see. No, your stance is, in what ways can I now be a blessing to these people? In what ways can I be a blessing? In, in whatever form that might be needed. Time and energy, space, words, thoughts, prayers to lose your life for Jesus' sake and for the sake of the gospel because it really is that in losing your life you find it. It really is in servanthood that you are great. It really is in being the slave of all that you are the first of all. Let's draw these threads together. Um, notice Jesus doesn't give any specific, specific instructions for service and the reason is that the service we do will be as diverse as we are. It may be for some that you'll step up to base camp tonight. That, that's, that's great. It, it would be a terrible thing to put me as a Bible study leader of five-year-old kids. Like, they just wouldn't understand three words that I said. It would, just, it's a, it would be a mistake. That's okay. For, for many of you, you'd be awesome at it. Service, Jesus gives us no instructions because what is going on here is deeper than instructions. Jesus is restructuring our hearts. That's his interest. 
restructuring of an attitude that we have towards ourself and towards the world, that in ourself we no longer are in it anymore, that the posture of your heart is not, what can I get out of this moment? When, when you go to dinner tonight, you don't sit at the table that you think, who's, who's going to be the most fun people to sit with? That's, you just don't think that anymore. You think, who can I serve around here? How can I be a servant right now? And likewise, a restructuring of your attitude towards the world. You're no longer afraid of the world or enslaved to the world. You're a free servant and lover. You may have heard the saying, um, hurt people hurt people. It's an interesting phrase, actually. I, I heard it just recently. Hurt people hurt people. And I think there's often truth in that. But crucially, it works the other way around as well. Loved people love people. Served people serve people. So let Jesus serve you. That's why he came. He says, you can't serve the way I serve. That's a, a once for all time thing, but you'll find that if you let me serve you, you will become more and more a servant yourself. When you're bought from captivity by his ransom, you're still in bonds actually, but they're the bonds of love. And so you grow a servant heart. A servant heart which doesn't assess people for what you can get from them, but what you can give to them. A servant heart which doesn't need affirmation anymore because you have all the affirmation you need in Jesus Christ. So as though Jesus says to us, I took the big cup for you so that you can take the little cups from each other. And, and perhaps just to put it this way, uh, uh, that includes difficult people. That includes difficult people. I wonder if Jesus ever got to the point of saying, I'm drinking the cup for this bunch? Jesus died, did you notice this? Jesus died for people who were stubborn. And so perhaps you might like to reflect on this. Are there people in your life that are stubborn? And how are you going with them? Jesus died for people who always wanting to get things from him. There may be people in your life who you know, they're just always trying to get things from you. How are you going with them? Jesus died for people who slept through his hour of greatest need. Are there people around you that you're really angry at because they slept through your hour of greatest need? Because what's our challenge in the face of difficult... Well, of course, it's to withdraw and and to be distancing and cold. A real test of our servant heart will be how we deal with the difficult people in our lives. Because a posture of servanthood and almost supernatural strength to serve the difficult people in your life can come only from a heart that is utterly full and utterly confident that you have been served by the living Lord at the cost of your life. Can I I put it like this? Um, 
if you're not serving? Do you see, do you see now there's something gone dreadfully wrong? It means that somehow Jesus hasn't filled your heart. We can't be those who know that Jesus drank the cup for us in beautiful, costly, sacrificial service to us and for it not to melt our hearts to become servants of him and of others. Because the truth is that whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many.